0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 88 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Schneider Electric is a global energy management and automation company headquartered in France, employing over 144,000 people around the world. With a history dating back to the 1830s, These days, Schneider Electric enjoys success in industrial control systems, industrial safety systems, electric power distribution and grid automation, smart grid technology, and data center power and cooling. Our guest today is Andrew Kling, Senior Director of Cybersecurity and System Architecture at Schneider Electric. He shares his professional journey, his experience pioneering many of the security measures we take for granted these days the shift to being proactive in his sector, and the importance of threat intelligence. Stay with us.
0: Many years ago, gosh, I've I've really stopped counting, Um, (laughs) but it's over 10 years. The, The topic of how do we How do we authenticate users? How do we authorize the certain functions that they have access to started to come up um, while I was working at Schneider, then in And we started working through what the strategy would be. And I had made some recommendations, though I wasn't in charge of it at the time, made some recommendations about adopting uh, some industry standards and moving in that direction. Well, as, as organizations go, they thought they could do a better job of, of this, and they went and tried to invent a security layer of their own. Um, and after about a year of that, um, they came back and said, uh, this isn't working, Andy, so uh, we want to put you in charge. And really, it kind of took off from there. Um, we started addressing, finding vulnerabilities, addressing them, building in layers of, of cyber features into our products. And I've just been... Uh, Picking up steam ever since.
1: Well, uh, so let's explore that a little bit. I mean, can you describe to us what was the lay of the land there at Schneider? And so what were some of the specific challenges you were up against?
0: So so at the time, uh, we had both a Windows offer and a Linux offer. Actually, it was Solaris at the time, a Unix offer, Solaris. Hmm. It was primarily focused on our DCS space, although we did have safety offer. We did have SCADA offers. They really hadn't come into my my uh, picture at the time. And really, they were developed, as many legacy applications were, without an SDL, without a secure development lifecycle, without really acknowledging that cybersecurity was going to be something important. Uh, I could see that. I could clearly see that it was going to be uh, something that was going to be of critical critical nature going forward in how we developed applications you know, it was really about bringing awareness to the organization. So we were very lucky to have a few champions who um, were at that senior level—not quite executive level, but at the senior level—and they brought they brought an awareness to the organization that there at least has to be some attention that's paid here. So I think we we were very lucky to have those those early champions because they they allowed us to get a program started. Th- those early early days. Um, we really got the seeds planted, and we really started to make some some good progress. And it, it, it may say, sound very strange to say good progress. What was good progress, Andy? Um, <laughs> we got rid of we got rid of a fixed password. You know that was that was something very significant at the time. Everybody thought it was fine to have um, fixed credentials to log into the application. Everything running under admin. These are very early wins that we got. And uh, and really, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of getting just those very straightforward things accomplished.
1: Can you give us some insight? What, what was it like getting buy-in for these sorts of things? What, what was the what was the diplomacy like on your end?
0: Buy-in. Okay. So so in an R and D organization, often one of the, the uh, misnomers, one of the misunderstandings about how R and D works in many large companies is that R and D actually controls their budgets. R&D doesn't control the budgets. R&D actually gets direction from other parts of the organization, typically a, an internal marketing organization attached to sales and external marketing, and they set the product direction. They set the strategy, and then R&D executes on that strategy. So really, the the early buy-in. While yes, there is buy-in at the R&D level, the big wins are when we got when we got some of our our marketing organization to understand the need to start to put some of these cyber features to bring cyber security to our product offer. And then what you could see, literally, were light bulbs going off all around the organization. There, even today, we all experience um, people who acknowledge cybersecurity as something important and execute it as part of their jobs. But then there are people who get it, where the light bulb has gone off and they understand that cyber security is more than just about building security preventing people from having access to your product it's about bringing a, a, a different type a different way of thinking about quality the quality of the product you're building the robustness of the product that you're building and those early wins were those people where these light bulbs were going off
1: and and so is, is it a matter of of shifting from uh, i suppose a, a culture of being reactive to being proactive and building things in from the get-go
0: Uh, Of course. I mean, so so we have standards that help us along and understanding that you have to be proactive in order to bid now. And and uh, and and that's that's important. There's still a large amount of of reactivity in the market. You know, whether you want to lead or follow um, is is a strategic decision. And sometimes committing too early is as important as committing too late. And so there's there's a balance in, in what we look at when we talk about cybersecurity. It's not a balance of is this enough cybersecurity, because honestly, it's kind of binary. Either it's enough or it's not. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, you're breached. It's it's really amount of how much effort, how much do we continue to focus on this uh, as, as we go forward? And, and it means that we are developing a program that isn't just about bringing feature to the product. It means that we're developing a cybersecurity program that reaches all the way back to where the product is conceived and all the way forward to how that product is supported in the field. How we are managing that product as it goes through its lifecycle, how we're managing that service, those services that we offer around it, whether it's training or installation or cybersecurity uh, services, it's really about the, the maturity of the program that we bring as we're looking forward. I I guess, you know, your question was, is it proactive or reactive? Uh, There's a balance there is really what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah. And and I I suppose, I mean, it's also something that, um, at this point in the game, security can't be grafted on after the fact. It has to be part of the process from the get-go.
0: Correct. Correct. That, uh, you know, even, even when you try to graft it on or, or, uh, as, as some of our very large oil and gas customers have pointed out, they call it bolted-on security. It's very obvious when you're bolting on security to a legacy product, and the product itself hasn't had security uh, essentially built into it from the very beginning. You know, one example to, to look at is it's it's part of but really a little bit adjacent, and that's GDPR, privacy. Hmm a lot of the products, a lot of the systems that exist today don't have information models built into them, don't have information security models built into them. And so GDPR was was something that was bigger than probably it needed to be if we had these information security models built into our product offers from the very beginning. And when I say our, I mean across the industry. There was a lot of people scrambling around GDPR, and and really it's coming back to, How do we control the the access to the information? A very cyber-centric principle.
1: Now, I I suppose uh, over the course of your career, you've really uh, been witness to this process of these industrial control systems, that that side of the industry, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, being hosed up to the Internet, because it wasn't always that way on that side of things.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, that's... uh a direction that it was was very predictable. You know, at some point, people started labeling you know a lot of this connectivity, IOT, or or computing at the edge, and we all know that in the industrial control space, a lot of this had already existed. No, you know, we weren't possibly using IP based protocols. We were using more ICS uh, proprietary protocols. But the concept of of having a compute capacity at the edge. With communications that are inherent in it has always been around in the ICS industry. Having that evolve, that that compute capacity now to include the ability to communicate another part of that IoT definition, to be able to communicate out to the internet, possibly even bypassing the uh, the uh, the control system altogether, is is something that. It's rather obvious that this is where things are, where things are going, and will continue to evolve in this direction. As the concept of computability at the edge gets cheaper and cheaper, people are gonna wanna do more and more with it. Those people aren't necessarily always defined by operations. They're going to be defined by the business side as well, and they're gonna want more direct access to that information that's going on in their plants. This will allow them to pick up the speed of their business. So it's, it's it's very natural, this, this progression. And you can, you can continue to play it out forward and, and really sort of anticipate where it's going to be going.
1: And where do you suppose it's going?
0: Where I suppose it's going is you're going to be looking at layers of compute resource. You're going to start to think about running your applications where it makes the most sense, not necessarily where it's driven just by process efficiency, but perhaps driven by other factors like, like cost. We'll just pick cost or security. You know, and, and you may execute your application in a more secure location or a more cost-effective location because you have more direct access to, the, to those inputs coming from, the, uh, coming from the process itself. Now, this isn't to say that, that process control goes away. Of course not. Uh, process control um, is, is uh, very fixed in, in our world but the fact that say a business may want to build a um a thermometric model of of a reaction and they may want to do this using thermal imaging cameras instead of a a series of sensors that may be something that the business may want to do and they may want access directly to this information so they may be reaching directly down to the process to get access to this information bypass the uh the process control system now they may then make a business decision about how to affect, how to tune that process. They may want to say, um, you know, the cost of energy is going down or or these raw material costs are, are shifting in price. Let's adjust the the plant based on a business decision, not just the traditional uh, efficiency reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point because I, I think um – you, you you can't discount the fact that these are businesses, and so there are competitive forces at play as well.
0: And this brings in a whole different line of security challenges then. You know, who has access to this information? Um, how fast do you need? One of the challenges that we have right now is how fast do you need access to these inputs, yet you still have to secure them. You know, so we all know that there's... There's an awareness that's being driven across the ICS industry about layer zero, layer one, basically inputs uh, and outputs and, and the cybersecurity that exists at those levels. And, and what can we do about them? And if you just start to apply traditional cybersecurity thinking, you you start to get in trouble really quick because, you know, you can't, say, drop hardware-based encryption on an input sensor that requires sub-millisecond um, response times hmm. that you you simply can't drive it that fast. But you do need to bring cybersecurity to it. These are the kind of challenges that that IoT, that this this connecting of this information to other parts of the business, say it's the internet or not, doesn't matter. But other parts of the business, and you're going to be really challenged with having to come up with some unique ways to bring cybersecurity to this to this new world.
1: So, I I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about um, threat intelligence. Um, Let's just start off uh, at a high level. I mean, what part do you think threat intelligence plays in the kind of work that you do?
0: It's interesting. You know, each year when I work with my team, I try to pick a theme that I'm going to be focusing on for the year. And one of the things that I picked this year, one of the top things I picked, was to stop focusing on just the SDL to help us find vulnerabilities, to help us understand what it is that we're supposed to be fixing in our products. Yes, the SDL is is, uh, is a very, very powerful tool um, in, in helping drive consistency in our, our product development across our organizations. But what I wanted to think about was, think like the attackers. They're not saying, what's the most severe vulnerability that they have? I'm going to attack there. They're saying, what tools do I have at my disposal? What techniques do I use? And I'm going to come in wherever that vulnerability is at whatever level. So an SDL you know, drives you to think about the most severe vulnerabilities first, addressing those. And there's a certain logic to that, of course. But you have to think about threat intelligence as part of the story. You have to think about where your adversaries are, where the advanced persistent threats are, where the emerging, the emerging viruses are, and what they're taking advantage of. And you need to incorporate that into your prioritization scheme, the prioritization scheme being that scheme that drives your backlog, how you sort your backlog. So you're working on the most important. No, now I'm not saying the most severe. I'm saying the most important vulnerabilities first so that you're addressing the highest risk items first
1: yeah, and it's a really interesting insight. I'm curious you know, how much uh, what part do you believe that automation plays in this? I'm thinking of things like artificial intelligence, being able to to filter that fire hose of information before it gets to your analysts,
0: yeah. you know t- traditional traditional web searches, you know searching for keywords, there's a place for that. You know it's it's part of the uh, the the if you want to call it the stack of technologies that you could use for for threat intelligence. But at some point, when you're say, say a person in my position, I have multiple product lines that I'm responsible for. there are many, many, many technologies that are used across the uh, the 600 or or 800 engineers that we have in our organization, this part of the Schneider Electric Organization. How do I keep track of all that? How do even even a, a team of security engineers think about that? And it's too much. So you have to start thinking about, can you use an AI to parse the language? Can you use an AI to parse the language and start to pull out metadata to start to pull out themes in the discussion to help narrow your, your awareness, your search um, towards towards threat intelligence that makes the most sense for us Now I I'm not, I'm not condoning that that we start trolling the dark web and, and looking in, in uh, all those dangerous places around there there are, there are organizations that do that. I do think that we should be partnered with those kinds of organizations. You know, I talk about with my with my own organization, we talk about yes, the the public facing threat intelligence that is sort of that first layer. And those AI tools are gonna to provide great resource to help narrow that that, that fire hose of, of data down into some information that we can we can uh, process. But I think that we also have to be looking to organizations that bring us uh, behind the scenes type uh, threat intelligence, whether this is researchers that we're connecting with and and listening to them um, and what they're investigating. And in that case, researchers, very interestingly, not just researchers looking for vulnerabilities in your product and looking for different ways to attack uh, products and systems that we produce, but researchers who are also looking the other direction. About how to detect uh, attacks in progress, how to detect vulnerabilities, how to, de- you know, not just finding the vulnerabilities, but what are the, the the techniques that they're using? What does what does a mathematical model look like of a stable DCS system running? And if you see some sort of, of change in that mathematical model, can you identify a, a cyber attack in process? These are the kind of of researchers that that we also try to engage with. So that we can sort of see what's what's coming from their direction and, and knowing that the threat the the threat actors are also thinking in these terms. How do they come into a system more stealthily? So it's it's a back and forth in this threat intelligence. And then finally, when when I think about threat intelligence, um, I think any large organization like a Schneider Electric should have government contacts, not just US government, but governments around the world. And we should be working with them, um, sometimes at a classified level, some not always at a classified level. Um, and this is something that we take very seriously as well. All of this threat intelligence allows us to build a picture, allows us to build a picture to understand what the adversaries are, who they are, the tools and techniques that they're using, and what we need to do to, uh, to address.
1: Yeah, I, I'm curious, you know, from a personal point of view, I mean, that must be... Uh, to a certain degree, sobering that uh, you know the the target that you all have on your back as an industry uh, is at the nation state level, and we're talking about critical infrastructure and, and national security.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know when I when I have informal talks with friends or, or colleagues, it, it, I, I do acknowledge that you know the headlines really are full of more financially driven personal cyber attacks. You know the WannaCry's. Well, the Wanna Cries don't distinguish anybody, but, but, you know, the Wanna Cries of the world, which are out there trying to, to you know, go through and, and get some sort of ransom from somebody. But when I, when I sort of lead that conversation forward, then I said the target that's painted on our back is so much bigger because it's more than just money. In this case, sometimes it's human safety that's in, in jeopardy. And we have to take this very seriously, and I can say that we do take it very seriously. It's it, it didn't take us the recognition of it becoming human safety that's involved to get us there, but it is it it does sort of underscore that importance of what we're doing. That you can't take you can't take your eye off of the ball here. You have to constantly be vigilant, and threat intelligence is an important part of paying attention. Something can prop up, and it can go from zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye. Let's look at. Uh, the WannaCry situation or, or when the uh, it started even earlier when the Eternal Blue um from the tool the tool dump um hit the street, it went from that to wanna cry so fast. So fast. And we knew. We knew the you know what the vulnerability was that Eternal Blue was, was taking advantage of and we were working to react to it, yet we still were not faster than WannaCry getting to the street.
1: Is is there anything that you wish that, uh, you know, regular folks, uh, you know, living their day-to-day lives, who see these stories in the press about the possibilities of electric grids going down and so forth, um, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, what's an appropriate level of concern for people to dial in? We've got folks like you who are out there uh, working and fighting the good fight to make sure that we are safe and that these systems are reliable, and, and it seems to me like they certainly are, uh, certainly here in the United States. But um, you know, what's the appropriate level of concern for for folks like us to dial in?
0: No, that's that's a good question. You know, the the one thing that I would ask the average person to understand, just to think about, even just for a few minutes, what the critical infrastructure of their life is. We all like healthcare. We all enjoy clean water. We all understand that that food is important to us, and that delivery of the food to uh, through our supply chain is important. People should just think about that and think about would there if if an adversary was sufficiently motivated would they attack our critical infrastructure and what are we doing to protect that critical infrastructure and and if the average person just thinks about it they realize this is bigger than buying a piece of antivirus software it's bigger than safe email practices this is something that's very important and they need to be asking their their leaders whether that's leaders in the uh and, and the government, local or or federal, whether this is leaders and, and those companies like the Schneiders of the world that are building products that that run, that power the, the critical infrastructure, they need to be asking their leaders, what are they doing about protecting that critical infrastructure?
1: Our thanks to Andrew Kling from Schneider Electric for joining us.